Thank you, brother. Thank you for those that serve with him and leading us in worship every Sunday. Hope you have a Bible with you, something that you can open up preferably or something that you can turn on or uh, unlock. And if you will find with me Psalm 119, Psalm 119. And when you find your way there, something that Mr. Brockman can't do, you can put your finger there and then turn over to Acts chapter 4. We're going to start just for a setting in Acts chapter 4, but then we will spend the majority of our time in Psalm 119 this morning. I am so grateful that you are here, and I'm so thankful that you chose to be here and to worship with us together. Um, hopefully when you came in, you got a bulletin on the back of the bulletin. There are some notes if you want to follow along as we study through God's Word Together, we are in the midst of walking through the second core value of the church. Several months ago, we as a church, we embraced three core values as a church. So let's do a little pop quiz. Core value number one is... Oh my gracious, you all make me feel so good. You have such a sweet way of encouraging me. Okay, so core value number one is to build families. Core value number two is to teach the Bible. And core value number three is to be the church. And so we've been working through on Sunday mornings. We spent several weeks looking out of Genesis about what it means to build families, about God's design and God's standard and then God's plan for the home and for the family. And then we then transitioned into what it means to teach the Bible. So we started in Psalm 119 and verses 1 through 8 a couple of weeks ago, looking at why the Bible matters and what the Bible, how the Bible is important. And then last Sunday, we looked at just verse 9 because we had uh, Mr. Bob Henderson here with the Gideons and talking about the work they were doing. You all gave over $1,100 to support the Gideon work and to go out and to help spread Bibles. And I am so grateful for that. And he was here and he talked about the work they are doing to get God's word into more people. So we looked at just verse 9 last week talking about the psalm writer reminding us that everyone has a way, meaning a, a path of life or a direction that their life is headed in. And every person's life is guarded by something. It may be guarded by God's word. It may be guarded by the opinions of others or it may be guarded by themselves. And so we are going to find ourselves back in Psalm 119 and we're going to pick verse 9 down through verse 16 to look at this morning and what does it mean as we continue to look at God's direction for our lives, especially in the idea of why it is a core value of this church that we teach the Bible. We're not spending the time on Sunday mornings to try to do a primer or maybe a practical workshop on how it is that you teach the Bible, more so that we are just wanting to make sure there's commonality and understanding why it is important that we as a church teach the Bible. Let me show you where I'm at. Acts chapter 4 and in verse 19 and verse 20, you will see an interesting turn of phrase. Now to kind of remind you of where you're coming into the story, Peter and John, or Peter preached at Pentecost, 3,000 people got saved. Peter and John go to the temple, right, or heal the lame man. He gets up, Peter preaches again, 5,000 people are saved. By this time, 8,000 people have come to the Lord. The uh, religious rulers are like, no, nah, this can't happen. They arrested Peter and John and some of the other apostles, they brought him in and they were questioning him and it gets there in Acts chapter 4 that they tell him, you better be quiet. You better stop talking about Jesus. And in Acts chapter 4 and verse 19, Peter and John answered them whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather to God 
you must judge. For we cannot speak of what we have seen and heard. Let me give you the old Spence McConnell translation. They never got over what Jesus did. And history will tell us out of the 11 remaining disciples after the resurrection of Jesus, 10 of those 11 would then go on through the course of the ministry to be martyred, to be killed for their faith. Why? Because they never got over Jesus. And yet you say, well, how does that connect to Psalm 119? Well, there are some times in our daily Christian life that we have the words of life. We have the hope for the world. We have the truthfulness of God's word to us. And yet we so easily and too quickly get over it. You buy a brand new Bible or get a brand new Bible given to you as a gift. You're like, oh, this is such a cool Bible. And you spend time and and you're looking through it. And then it seems like a week later, you're like, I don't even know where it's at. And what I hope that you will see with me this morning is the reason why this book matters. The reason why God's word matters is because it is God's word to us. And my hope and my prayer for us as a faith family, us as a church body, is that we never get over the opportunity that we get to have God's word in a language that we can read, in a way that we can understand it, and to have the freedom to study God's word and to know God's word. Why? Because if I was going to tag this morning, not only do you see the title there as far as being God's direction, but when it really comes down to the simplicity of this, it's pretty simple. This is God's world. It's God's rules. And it's God's word. So let's look together in Psalm 119. I'm going to start in verse 9. We're going to read down through verse 16 as I've done a couple weeks ago. We're not going to initially take it verse by verse. Rather, we're going to take it as a block and look at some lessons the psalm writer gives us about how do we come and how do we understand the importance and how do we understand what the Word of God is supposed to be in our lives and the place it is supposed to have in our lives. So starting in Psalm 119, if you'll follow along in your copy as I read out of mine, Verse 9, how can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Blessed are you, O Lord. Teach me your statutes. With my lips I declare all the rules of your mouth. In the way of your testimonies I delight as much as in all riches. I will meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your ways. I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. I pray that God adds understanding and application to his word this morning. When you come up there to Psalm 119 and verse 9, you get the idea. We don't know exactly who wrote this psalm. We don't know exactly when it was written, but written, I'm sorry, but when you come to verse 9 and you get the idea that it's written from a male perspective, it's written from a young man's perspective, it's written from a perspective of somebody saying, you know what, I want to know what it means to follow after God or to have God's wisdom and God's direction in my life. So as he comes and he writes verse 9 down through verse 16, he gives us some pointers. He gives us some 
some markers, or he even gives us some lessons of what it looks like to follow after God's direction for our lives. So in the time that we have, I just want to work through three of these lessons that he gives us regarding God's word and its direction for our lives. And the first one you'll see there in your notes, the psalm writer reminds us, teaches us, shows us that this word of God, this Bible that you have in your hands, it is truth revealed. Truth revealed. Where do you get that from, Spence? Well, you think about the ways that he described the word of God. He talked about them being commandments. He talked about them being statutes. Talked about them being precepts. Talked about what they were and who they are. The testimonies and how his ways and his word and all of these things. In fact, if you look there and going down through verse 9 down through verse 10, he talks not just about what God's word is, but he talks about who is the source. In fact, if you read through there, Verse 9, and you can count these with me, by guarding it according to your word. And then he goes on in verse 10, your commandments. Again, in verse 11, your word. Verse 12, your statutes. Verse 13, all the rules of your mouth. Verse 14, your testimony. Verse 15, your precepts. Verse 15, your ways. Verse 16, your statutes. And verse 16, your word. The source of this word that you have before you is given 10 different times. It's the way that the song writer has a way of emphasizing emphasizing this and saying, do not miss the point. This is not a fictional work. This is not a set of moral principles. This is not an Aesop's fable. This is not an allegory. This is God's word to his people. And it's not just a matter of information. So you can get on the interweb these days and you can find all kinds of pieces of information. But that's not what this is. This Bible that you have in your hand, it's the truth of God. It tells you what is up, what is down, what is right, what is wrong. It tells you how to live. It tells you what is true, what is false, and it gives you all of that, not just the information, the facts, and the history, those are there, but it also gives you the application. It gives you the wisdom. It's not that God comes in and says, okay, let me tell you a timeline. He does that, but then he says, and then let me show you why the timeline matters for your life. So it's not just facts and it's not just information. The psalm writer is saying, do you understand that what you have is truth? Now we get overwhelmed in a society today because we just assume that everything is true. Anything and everything at your disposal, well, it's true. This bottle of water says that it's been filtered, purified water. Well, if it says it on the bottle, it must mean that it is true. The problem is, is I took this bottle of water. I've already drank it. In fact, I've probably filled this bottle up 20, 30 times by now. I fill it up out of the tap, out of the sink. Comes from the Wellston, the the fine municipal water coming out of Wellston. I don't know if it's purified or not, but sometimes we just look and we assume because it says it, it must be true. The psalm writer says you need to understand there is a distinction and there is something different between everything that you will find in the world or you will find on internet or interweb. There's a difference between this And all of that, all of that, it depended upon fallen man for authenticity and for reliability. Everything else is written and composed by man. This is inspired by God. 
which means for us in this room that it is without comparison. There is nothing else that compares to the word of God. You mean I could go to the Book of Mormon. Okay, you might find some cool stories that you may not have known, but you know what? It's not on the same level with authenticity or authority as God's word. Well, what about the uh, other religions that are out there and their teachings? Well, there may be something in there that you might find entertaining or useful for knowledge, but they don't carry the same authority. They don't carry the same authenticity. It is not the same as the truthfulness of God's word. And yet, brothers and sisters, so many times you and I are moving through this life and we're not worried about what is true. We're worried about what we want to see. Thursday, we had an accident in the oil field and some metal uh, rubbed against some other metal. It caught fire and we had a little bit of a fire incident on Thursday. Friday, I'm sitting there with a coworker and we're talking about it and something comes up about Smokey the bear. Now, some of you young people, you may not have any clue who Smokey the bear was. Well, Smokey was a cartoon character who his whole job was to remind you that only you can prevent wildfires, forest fires, forest fires. Only you can prevent forest fires. So there was a, a bear with a little ranger cap on, and he had this whole campaign about trying not to set the whole world on fire. And so as we're talking about this, co-worker says, well, who was the voice of Smokey the Bear? I'm like, I don't know. And he said, I think, I, I think, I think it was Jim Cummings. So he gets on his phone in five seconds. He would have done it in three seconds. He had an Apple phone, but he was on an Android. And so in five seconds, he's sitting there and it pulls up. The first, the first hit said, yes, it is Jim Cummings. And he's like, see, I, I told you it was Jim Cummings. You scroll three more steps down and there's another article that says not only was it Jim's Cummings, but through the course of the legacy of Smokey the Bear, Jim Cummings, Frank Welker, Jack Angel, Sam Elliott, Roger Carmel, Jackson Weaver, Gene Mosh, and George Welsh all played the voices of Smokey the Bear. Why do I tell you that? One, for useless information that you might find you know, maybe in a trivia situation someday. But the other thing is, is because so many times we look something up and whatever is the first hit, we assume that that is truth, that that is all we need to know. And there is nothing else that compares or contradicts that. And you and I are so duped into thinking, well, because it's the first hit, it must mean it's the most reliable. Because it's the first hit, it must mean that it's the most true. Because it's the first hit, it must mean it has the most legitimacy. And we fail to understand that people pay to have a place at the top of the list all you're getting is who paid the most money to be at the top spot and we assume we just assume because we read it on the internet because we found it through a search engine because we heard it on the television because it came through on the radio that must be true and then we start to compare that when we come to those things and we will accept those things because I read it on the interweb and then yet when we come to God's word we will say well you know what I know what God's word says but I think this I feel this I believe this or my experience says that and so the psalm writer tells us remind yourself when you come to this book it's not about your feelings it's not about your emotions. It's not about your experience or your tradition. You come to this book and you know that this book is not comparing to anything else in this world. This book is without comparison because this book is true. So, Spence, what do I do if I read in the Bible it says X and yet the TV says Y? Well, I'm going to tell you when that time comes, you go with X. 
well, what do you mean if I get to the point and it says to do this and I just don't feel like that? And you know, my, my, my conscience is just burdened. You go with this because you understand that this is true when everything else is fallen. The psalm writer reminds us that it's truth revealed. But then he goes on, he gives us another lesson. Not only is it truth revealed, but it's revealed to us. See, it's not just a matter that it's true, that it's truth that we can live our lives, but the, the cool thing about this is that God has revealed it to us. It's not that he revealed it to the ancient Egyptians years and years ago, and now it's written in hieroglyphic, and now you and I look at it and go, you know what, that tells me all the things that I need to know to please and to serve after God. The only problem is, is I don't understand it. And you know, there's been people throughout the course of history that have died, have given their lives so that they could translate God's word either from the Hebrew or the Greek or the German or the Latin into a language that you and I can understand today. People gave their lives because they felt so strongly about people having God's word to them because they understood that this word is true, but this word has also been revealed to us. So that's why the psalm writer keeps talking about these statues and he keeps talking about himself in the personal pronoun, I, 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 your servant, I, I, over and over again because he wants you to understand that this word has been revealed to us. Why? Because we have a creator and this creator has revealed himself. It's not that you and I are sitting there going, you know what? I know that God created us, but I don't know anything about God. I don't know who God is. I don't know what God's about. I don't know anything. I don't know what it means to be pleasing in the eyes of God. I don't know what it means to serve God. I don't know what this looks like to be faithful to God. I don't have any clue about any of this stuff. No, 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 no. The psalm writer reminds us that this truth has been revealed and it has been revealed to us. So you can come and you can know what sin is. And you can know that your need for forgiveness. And can you can know the depth of God's love for you. And you can know what it means to be in right relationship and fellowship with him. And you can know how you're to respond to your brothers and sisters in Christ. And you can know how it is that you're to compose and order your life. You can know what he is going to hold you accountable to you stand before him one day. You know. You know when I get before God one day, I know exactly the standard by which he is going to judge me. If, you, if, you be, if you're in school for any length of time, and it seems like I've never gotten out of school since I can remember, but you're in school for any length of time, you're going to have found those times when you sit there on that test, and it's a test that's going to test your knowledge, and it seems like every single time there's a question on there, and you're like, you know what, we didn't cover that. That, pre that teacher never said anything about that. Where is this question coming from? This is left field. You and I look and go, you know what, I am being evaluated, and I am being held accountable for information that I don't ever remember receiving that's not with God that's not with God you're going to stand before God one day and every standard that he is going to hold you accountable to he's given us in his word which means 
since we have a creator and his creator has revealed himself to us and that is what the psalm writer is saying. He is saying, I seek you. I have stored up. You are Lord. Teach me your statutes with my lips. I declare all the rules of your mouth. All of these things he is recognizing that God has spoken through his word to him. He has revealed himself so therefore it again lends itself to understand that we are responsible. We're responsible. Well, Spence, you mean it's all my fault? No, I'm not saying it's all your fault. What I'm saying is, is that because we have been given God's word and because we know that God's word is true, the psalm writer says, now I have a responsibility in how I respond to God. I have a responsibility with what I do with the truthfulness of God's word. I now have a responsibility in what I do with it. You have been given information and now you're responsible for how you treat that information. Let me give you an example of this. Hold your finger there in Psalm, well, not you, David. Hold your finger there in Psalm 119 and go with me to Romans chapter 1. Just, it's not that far of a stretch. Go with me to Romans chapter 1, if you will. Romans chapter 1. Uh, Paul is talking about this responsibility. He's talking about this responsibility that we have. <laughs> and he talks about it there in Romans chapter 1 and, uh, and verse 18. I want you to listen to this. And you can hold your finger here because we're going to go back to Psalm 119 and then we're going to come back to Romans chapter 1. But listen to how... The writer here, Paul, as he's writing to the church, listen to how he frames this responsibility. Verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men by whom, or, or, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because he has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his internal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. What is he saying there? He is reminding every single person that God has revealed himself to his creation. Some of them have a word of God that they can understand. Some of them do not have the word of God. Some of them have heard about Jesus. Some of them have not. But he says that every single piece of of creation is without excuse. In other words, every single person is responsible. And the psalm writer wants to make it very clear that it's not that your mama's responsible, your daddy's responsible, your Sunday school teacher's responsible, your spouse is responsible. It's not that the government is responsible. It's not the preacher that's responsible, the deacon that's responsible. Every single person in this room is responsible for their standing before God. And that's why it really doesn't matter if you come in and you say, well, you know, I went to church, so therefore I'm good. Coming to church doesn't save you. Well, I own a Bible. That's, that means I'm good. No, no. Having a Bible doesn't save you. Oh, well, you, you know, I, I'm going to do it. I'm going to take care of it. You know, I need to get some things taken care of. I need to change some lifestyles. I need to fix some behaviors. I need to take care of some things before I come to God. How long do you think you have? Every single person is responsible. Well, Spence, I'm only 10 years old. I'm not old enough. Well, how old's old enough? Well, Spence, I'm 60 years old. I'm too old. How old's too old? See, every person is responsible for what God's word says. So the psalm writer comes in in verse 9 through verse 16 there in Psalm 119, and he is saying, listen, God has revealed his truth 
His, his truthfulness to us. He's revealed his commands. He's revealed his precepts. He's revealed his words. He's revealed his statutes. He's revealed his testimonies. He's revealed all these things to us. Not just to them or not just to those people or not just to that person. He has revealed it to all of us. Then it comes to the point of application. Because the third lesson he reminds us is that we will choose. He shows us truth being revealed. He reminds us that it has been revealed to us. But then he says, it's a choice. And that's where it comes down to. It comes down to a choice. How are we going to respond? We give the benediction prayer at the end of this service. You have a decision. You can leave or you can stay. But you're going to do one of the two. Well, I'm not going to leave and I'm not going to stay. Yes, you are. I'm not saying you have to do either one. I'm just saying that when we get done and we're dismissed and everybody starts milling around, either you're going to stay or you're going to go. You're going to make a decision. I realize there's some of you in this room that it takes a lot of stress and takes a lot of, uh, of angst to try to make a decision. And yet every single day we are making decisions. I am going to stay or I am going to go. I come to an ET intersection. I'm going to turn left or I'm going to turn right. I wake up and I'm laying in the bed. I decide whether I'm going to get up out of bed or I'm going to stay in bed. We are making a decision. So what the Psalm writer is telling us is, is that when we understand that God has given us his word, and he's revealed himself to us and we understand what that is. It's truth, commandments, precepts, statutes, all of those things. So we say, so now God has authority over me and now this is what God wants me to do. Now I have a choice. It's either going to be yes God or no God. Now part of our lives today are trying to figure out how we can say yes and no in the same sentence. Or we want to say yes over here when it's convenient, and then we want to say no over here when it's unpopular. Or we want to say yes over here when we feel like it, and we want to say no over here when we don't feel like it. Or we want to say yes over here when we're under conviction, and then when we say we want to say no over here when we feel like we can blame somebody else. We want to say yes over here when it's easy, and no over here when it's hard. But the reality is, is every single day, every single moment when you know what God's word says, either you're going to say yes, God, or you're going to say no, God. It's a decision. It's a choice. Well, Spence, can it be more complicated than that? Well, we try to make it more complicated than that. But the reality is, it is a decision. It's either yes, God, or no, God. You mean there's not a gray area? No, there's not a gray area. It's either yes, God, or no, God. You get up on Sunday morning, and I know you're tired. I know you're wore out. I know you need a break. I know you need rest. I know, I know you poor, pitiful self. I know. The question is, Am I going to go to church today? It's yes, God, or no, God. That's it. That's, that's as simple as it is. You get up in the morning. The decision comes. Am I going to put God first and start my day in God's word? Or am I going to say I'll have to do it later and come up with all my excuses? Yes, God, or no God. 
When I come to God's word and God's word convicts me, it confronts me. It, it, it brings me to the decision when it talks about forgiveness or when it talks about love or when it talks about patience or when it talks about my behavior and my actions. And I come faced with the conviction that, you know what, my life doesn't reflect this. So then the question comes, well, then what am I going to do? Am I going to do what I want, what I feel, what I think is best, or am I going to do what God's word says? It's yes, God. Or no God. And some of you students at school. I'm so grateful that I'm not in high school these days. There was enough temptations, enough opportunities to be silly, dumb, whenever I was in school. But now they've just grown exponentially. And you're sitting there. And that fellow classmate says, hey, let's go do some dumb stuff. And you know you shouldn't do dumb stuff. The question is. Yes, God. No, God. You may say, well, yeah, but what am I going to tell my buddy? Well, it starts with, it starts with yes, God, or no, God. They come second. They come third. They come fourth. It starts with the principle. It's yes, God, no, God. So the psalm writer here then tells us we will choose. It comes down to a choice. Now, notice, we're going to count these again. Notice how he talks about then what he chooses. In verse 9, he says, by, accord, by guarding it according to your word. In verse 10, he says, with my whole heart, I will seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. Verse 11, he has stored up your word in my heart. Why? So that I may not sin against you. Then verse 12, he says, blessed are you, O Lord. Teach me your statutes. You hear? He's saying, this is what my response is. This is my choice. This is what I'm going to do in light of God word that has been revealed to me. Verse 13, with my lips I declare. It's not a silent, it's not a I'm going to hold it to myself, I'm not going to tell anybody. He is declaring what? The score of the football game? How much money he's got? His social, his, his was it, social media influence status? What's he declaring? He's declaring all the rules of your mouth. Verse 14. In the way of your testimonies, I delight. And not just I delight because I know I'm supposed to lie. He says I delight as in or as much as in all riches. He says I couldn't be happier if I had $20 billion in the bank when I come to your word. Verse 15. I will meditate, ponder, dwell Chew on, bring into mind, bring it to bear, memorize. I will meditate on your precepts, verse 15. I will fix my eyes. It's mean that he is not distracted. He's not looking here. He's not looking there. He's got his eyes straight on God's word. And then verse 16 again, I will delight in your statutes. You hear what he's saying? He's saying, God, I'm going to enjoy reading your I'm going to enjoy spending time in your word. I'm going to enjoy studying the things of you. Last Sunday, I was telling you about Will and I and some other family members headed down to Birmingham, Alabama for that church service. The church service was called Seeker Church, and there was a pastor by the name of David Platt down there. And he had done some work overseas with underground churches and it was just kind of a, an intense time of Bible study. So he said, you know, I'm going to try this here in the States. So the church he was serving in the pastor, they said, yeah, let's do this. So at 4.30, we are sitting outside in a crowd. 
It's almost like I remember back in the days in a different life, the concerts or whatever you may be, and everybody's waiting outside. You're waiting in line, and you're out there at 4.30, at 6, or at 5.30, the doors open. There are people that are running, adults that are running in the sanctuary to get seats at the very front of the sanctuary. Probably sits 4,000 people, 5,000 people in that place. And then from 6 o'clock to 1 a.m., we are sitting in there, sing praises, take bathroom breaks, but we are studying a central doctrine of God's word. And I remember when I'm listening to this and I'm going, you know what, that's just a dumb idea. Who in the world would ever want to go and attend a service that you're there for seven hours and all you're doing is studying the Bible? Why would anybody want to do that? Nobody's gonna wanna do that. And the second time they offered it, the tickets, the tickets for this event, because you had to order your tickets and buy your tickets in advance, 5,000 tickets sold out in 22 minutes. Why do I tell you this? Because we have been so accustomed by the squalling of the world that says, you know what, church? You need to get away from teaching the Bible. You know what, church? You need to do what's trendy. You know what, church? You need to do what's popular. You know what, church? We will tell you what it is. We just need you to give some little sermonettes and give some little emotions here and have some cool music and turn down the lights and make everybody feel good and don't step on any toes. And that's what you need to do because that's what the world wants. And yet the writer here the writer here in Psalms says, I will delight in your statues. I will fix my eyes on your ways. He is saying, you know how to draw a crowd, tell them about Jesus. Peter told them about Jesus in Acts 2, and 3,000 people got saved. Peter told them about Jesus in Acts chapter 3, 5,000 people got saved. Tell them about Jesus. Verse 16, I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. You see, when he talks about the idea that we will choose, he then gives the response. His response is given 10 times. Just as his, the source of God's word was given 10 times, his response. This is what I'm going to do. This is how I'm going to respond. This is, this, this is my action because of God's word. 10 different times he talks about his response. And every single time, the way he presents it, it is a personal decision. It is a personal decision. You see, when it comes to God's word and it comes to our response to God's word, we might have a corporate response. We might have a corporate decision, but it begins with a personal decision. Is God's word important to you? Is God's word valuable for you? Does God's word matter to you? So he says it's, we're going to choose, but it's, it's a personal decision. It means it's going to require intentionality. It's going to require discipline. It's going to require being purposeful about what you do. And yet as you come to this and you start reading and you go back verse 9 through verse 16 and you look at all the things that he talks about, what you will find a pattern there is it is a daily devotion. It's not a one-time decision. It's not a, well, I marked a card. I filled out some information. I walked an aisle, I got wet in a baptistry. No, it is a daily devotion. Well, Spence, does it have to be daily? Do you sleep daily? Do you breathe daily? Do you drink fluid daily? Do you eat daily? 
And I'm sure there's somebody in this room like, oh, no, no. See, I went 36 hours one time without sleep. Yeah, but you know what? When you don't sleep and you don't breathe and you don't drink fluids and you don't eat, there are negative physical effects upon your life. And when you go day after day after day spiritually starving yourself, there will be be negative spiritual effects on your life. Because it's a daily devotion. What do you mean it's a daily devotion? Well, if you get over the New Testament, Jesus said in his model's prayer, says, give me this day our daily bread. You get over to Exodus and you get the example that how much manna fell from the sky for the people of God as they're going through the wilderness, just enough for that day. It's the idea that God says, I am going to teach you dependency. I am going to show you my faithfulness so that every single day when you get up, I have something for you when you come to me. And so that's what the psalm writer is saying. It's not saying that I want you to give me a week's worth in one moment. He's saying every single day, I'm going to come to you. I'm going to come to you and I'm going to submit myself. I'm going to trust that you have word for me and I'm going to come and hear from you. I am going to practice dependency upon you and I'm going to learn your faithfulness to me. And one of the greatest hindrances in the life of the church is that it is filled with people that are not daily devoted. And when you're not daily devoted, you don't know what God's word says. So then you get on television, you watch Joyce Meyer, and you think, she's pretty good. She's a false prophet, and she's leading people to hell. Or you get on your television, and you think, you know, let me just watch a little bit of Joel Osteen. Oh, he makes me feel good. He tells some funny jokes. He's a liar, and he doesn't preach God's word. Well, how do you know, preacher? Because I read my Bible. And it's not just me. You can also know the truth if you read your Bible. But we don't have that daily devotion as the people of God. And so therefore, we believe what anybody tells us. So he says, you're going to choose. Either you're going to choose to go to God's word and to know what God's word says from God's word, or you're just going to trust that what anybody says about God's word is truth about God's word. So then how do we respond? So Psalm 119 verses 9 through 16, he tells us this truth has been revealed, has been revealed to us, and we will choose. It's either yes, God, or no, God. We will either know God's word or we won't. It'll be a daily devotion. So go back with me to Romans chapter 1. I want you to see what happens when you do not do what the psalm writer does. I'm not saying that you have to do it verbatim as a psalm writer, but he gives us a really good example of what it looks like. So you say, well, I don't want to do it his way. I was, I was talking to Mr. Carter earlier, and I was, I was telling him about my rebelliousness. Well, these last couple of weeks, I've been reminded just, I'm a rebellious, spoiled kid. Where does this rebellious fall in at? Let's pick back up where we stopped in Romans chapter 1. He ends in verse 20 and he says, so they are without excuse. But then verse 21, he picks it back up. He says, for although they knew God, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, 
but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. What is he saying? He is saying that these people knew God. They knew about God. They knew what they were supposed to do, but they looked at God and go, nah, I'm good. I got this. And they went over here and the effect was they became darkened in their mind. They became brittle in their mind. They became callous in their mind. Futile in their thinking. Their foolish hearts were darkened. And then consider verse 22. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. Oh, I know God, I know about God, but you know what? I'm not gonna listen to God or follow after God. And yet, then you wonder why they get up and start saying, well, I believe this and science tells us that and blah, 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 blah. They, thinking they were wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. You see the pattern here? They denied God. They said no to God. And then what happened is they became futile in their thinking. Their minds were darkened. Then they thought they were wise. They started saying all kinds of gibberish. And instead of worshiping God, then they started worshiping the world. They started worshiping man. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. What's Paul saying? Paul is saying when it comes time and you decide whether you're going to say yes, God, or no, God, don't think that by saying no, God, there's no consequences. Don't think that by saying no, God, there's not going to be any ramifications. You understand that when you say no, God, and you say no, God, enough, there's a darkness that comes upon your mind. You start to think, well, I know what is best for me, and I know what is right, and I know how I was born, and I know how I feel, and it's gotten even so dumb that you will find videos on social media talking about their toddler, a year and a half year old, that already know that they are not the gender they were born. So you're telling me I put toys in front of Micah who's less or less than two years old and depending on what toy he plays with will then determine what gender he is going to identify as it's not silly it's the result of darkened minds saying no to God and we can look back and we can wring our hands and say, well, Spence, that's out there. Spence, that's not our problem. Spence, how could they? How dare they? And we don't understand. We are in the same danger, according to Romans chapter 1, when we come to God's word and we say, no, God. It's the same danger we're in. And you may say, well, Spence, it's not that drastic. Oh, it is. Oh, it is, because what happens when we know God and we don't do what God says? Then God says he turns us over to our futile thinking and our hearts become darkened. Brothers and sisters, it's a matter of being yes to God and turning away from that darkness because you may not find yourself in some of that silliness that's going on, but it may exhibit itself in other ways. That's why it matters that we teach the Bible. That's why it matters that we know God's word. Let me try to land the plane here. So then how is it that we as a church, we look at this text and we say, okay, so what does that mean for us? What does that look like practically in the life of the church? Three points, three statements, and we're done. The first statement is this. You cannot teach what you do not know. You cannot teach what you do not know. If you do not know God's word, how do you expect to teach God's word? You might know humanistic moral principles, and you can teach humanistic moral principles. 
But you cannot teach God's word unless you know God's word. We have so many people today that are petrified. They are, they're absolutely terrified of the idea of doing any kind of evangelism whatsoever. Because if I go up and I talk to somebody and I start talking about Jesus, and what if they ask me questions I don't know? What if they say things that I don't know the answer to? And they have all of, these, they have all of this concern about talking to somebody about Jesus. That's not an indictment on the lost person. That's a reflection on you. Know God's word. You cannot teach God's words unless you know God's word. Secondly, you will not teach if you do not believe. You will not teach God's word unless you believe God's word. You gotta know it to teach it. You gotta believe it to teach it. You may say, well, Spence, maybe I'm just not cut out to be a teacher. I'm not talking about teaching in a formal sense or in a classroom setting. I'm talking about the idea that you're looking at people and saying, well, God's word says this. It's talking into the situation. It's talking into the application. Somebody comes to you and says, well, Spence, you know what? I'm having, I'm having a problem. I'm having a question. What should I do? You're able to speak truth into their life. Right now, I'm working on a degree in academia and biblical counseling, and the whole idea if you were to boil it down, Spence, what is biblical counseling? You're listening for unbiblical things, unbiblical thoughts, and you're countering it with biblical truth. I'm just listening to somebody say, well, you know what? God doesn't want me to be unhappy, so therefore I am allowed to do whatever I want to. No, 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 no. Flag. You're not going to find that. Well, you know what? Cleanliness is next to godliness. Where's that? Second hesitations? Uh, it's, not, it's one of those things. You're, you're listening for unbiblical thinking. You're counting biblical truth. That's what it means to teach God's word. You're looking at people and saying, this is what I do. This is what I'm doing. Why, why does that matter, Spence? Well, this is the last one. Souls will not be saved apart from God's truth. Souls will not be saved apart from God's truth. Oh, we can grow a church. Oh, we can grow a church. Oh, we can start a movement. Oh, we can have a tremendous amount of ministry in the eyes of man. Oh, we can do all the things right, but we can miss the point that it's about the saving of souls. Leading souls to Jesus. So Spence, you're telling me that you're going to be exclusive in saying there is only one way to Jesus. Yes. Why? Because Jesus said it. John 14 and verse 6. Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He doesn't say, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the church. No, he's saying it's all about getting people to Jesus. And no one goes to God the Father except through Jesus. So it's not about the attendance in here. It's not about how many people are coming and liking us on social media. It's about people understanding that souls will not be saved apart from God's truth. We can tell them self-help. We can do great motivational speeches. Oh, we can do all the things about making you feel good. And we can have all the emphasis on celebrating man. And we can even do all the things that are borderline idolatry. But if we don't teach the word, if we don't teach the Bible, then we're not seeking after souls. Amen. 